your body, your blood shed for us. That is what we plead this morning. Not our own strength, not our own righteousness, not our own wisdom, but the power and the wisdom that flows out of the cross of Christ and out up from the grave that He rose from. God, we we come in this morning first and foremost to confess to You, Lord, that we have tried in our own strength. We have tried in our own wisdom and we have failed. And so, Lord, we look to You today. We ask You to speak Your word, your life-giving word, the word that never fails. Speak it into our hearts this morning. Lord, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And so we ask that you would attend it with the power of your spirit, work in our hearts, change us, mold us. We want to be your faithful people but we can't do it on our own. We don't have it in ourselves. So we desperately need your presence today. Fill us with your goodness. Show us what it means that you prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Show us what it means to be satisfied in Christ. We look to him today and ask for you to set our minds and our affections upon Jesus. It's in his precious name that we worship and pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I would invite you to open your Bible, if you have one, to Psalm 83. And we're going to read the whole psalm together. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, it should be on the screen for you to follow along as well. <clears throat> this is Psalm 83, where we're going to spend uh, most of our time today. Psalm 83 a song, a psalm of Asaph. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord against you, they make a covenant. The tents of Edom, the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gibal and Ammon, Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher has also joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Selah. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us take the possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. O oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountain ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek Your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord to us today. 
John G. Patton was a missionary in the 1800s. Uh, But there's something unique and interesting about John Patton's missionary experience. He was called by God to spread the gospel to people who were known cannibals. Uh, In fact, just 20 years before Patton launched on his journey, in 1839, John Williams and James Harris were killed and eaten just a few minutes after they had arrived to attempt to reach the same people with the gospel. When John Patton started telling people in his life what he believed God was calling him to do, uh, someone exclaimed, The cannibals! You will be eaten by cannibals! And in his autobiography, you can read about experience after experience where he was brought right to the brink of death at the hands of these people. He tells a story about his house being surrounded by angry men who were shouting at him. He tells about uh, experience after experience where he was attacked and uh, one where a man actually put a knife right up to his chest ready to impale him. These were the extreme circumstances that John Patton not only found himself in, but that John Patton believed God had called him into. John Patton knew by his experience the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples just a few hours before Jesus himself was crucified. This is what Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 15. He said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John Patton knew this experience. He knew what it meant to be sent into the world by Jesus, but also hated by the world for Jesus. Now, maybe uh, you've never believed that you were going to be eaten alive for your faith in Jesus. But maybe you have experienced a real hostility towards you for being faithful to Jesus. And maybe maybe you've never actually thought you were going to be physically eaten, but maybe you have been chewed up and spit out, maybe socially, maybe verbally, economically. And the world that we live in is growing in hostility towards the gospel. And I, I don't want to say this in some sort of alarmist way, But what I mean is this, that a lot of the truths of Christianity that maybe in past generations were deemed as foolish by the world are more and more being deemed as dangerous by the world. Let me give you a few examples. Um, Our view of sex and gender is deemed repressive. Our view of the wrath of God is deemed intolerant. Our view of sinful humanity is deemed emotionally harmful. And our, our, our call for faith in the Lord Jesus, who is king of the universe, is deemed offensive and constraining. So the world around, around us might be fine if we believe certain things about God or the Bible, as long as those things remain private. But when our faith goes public, that is when hostility and hatred comes from the world around us. So here's the question for today. Uh, In a world where growing more and more, there's hostility against God and against his gospel. What do we do when we are surrounded by the hostility of the world around us? And here's the answer that Psalm 83 is going to give us. Psalm 83 is going to clearly show us 
that what we do is that we turn vertical to the God who is most high over all. We turn vertical. We look up to the God who is most high over all. And so there's five things involved in turning vertical. The first is, if you're taking notes, we look up to God. We look up to God. Uh, we'll be tempted, maybe. I mean, you heard it read. We'll be tempted to think that maybe this is some sort of a revenge psalm. Uh, but, but throughout it, we're going to see that it's not a revenge psalm because over and over and over again, Asaph turns to God instead of taking matters into his own hands. Uh, even in verse 1, before Asaph even starts to talk to God about his tough situation, he turns to God and speaks directly to him in verse 1. This is what it says. He says, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. So surrounded by the hostility, feeling the world around him, hating him, the first words out of Asaph's mouth are, O God. Uh, I've done a handful of weddings now, uh, but I've actually never used that line, that bit about uh, speak now or forever hold your peace. Uh, I can't imagine what it would be like to actually attend a wedding where when that line was shared, speak now or forever hold your peace, someone actually stood up and said, I object. I mean, that would be crazy. Right? The idea of saying that line is like, hey, here's your chance. If you have something to say, say it now. Because if you don't say it now, you're going to have to hold your peace. You're going to have to hold it to yourself for, forever. Asaph is saying, God, I know you have something to say. I know that you could do something. I know that you could intervene. So please don't hold your peace. Don't be still. Don't be silent. Please come and save us because only you can truly save us. So remember, the question we're asking this morning is, what do we do when we're surrounded by the hostility of the world around us? And I think this is a vital question for us to ask because far too often in my own life and far too often in what I see around me is that the way Christians are currently responding to hostility is by trying to conquer the world with the resources of the world. Trying to combat the world with the world. Asaph is teaching us to go vertical. He's teaching us to go up to God. But I see three dominant ways in which we're trying to combat the world with the world. And I want to share those three things with you. Here's, Here's three ways I see us doing this. The first is that we wallow in fear and worry. We think, you know, oh, the sky's falling. How can we survive? Uh, the world's changing, and it, and, it, and it shuts us up, and it makes us cower in fear, and it closes us down to being bold witnesses for Jesus. Uh, the second, and I think this might be the one that I see the most in myself and in, in others around me, is that we assimilate. We feel the pressure. We feel the hostility. And so we change. We change what we believe. We change how we act. We change what we say. And more and more and more slowly and slippery, we, we realize that there's actually no noticeable difference between us and between the world around us. And then I think a third and final way that I see us looking horizontally for what only God can give vertically is that we actually sometimes seek revenge. We feel the hostility, we feel the hatred. And so we take matters into our own hands, we lash out, we gossip, um, even in more subtle ways, just like walking in unforgiveness. We we try to take matters into our own hands rather than turning to God. And the problem with with all these options is that all of them are trying to find horizontally 
what can only be found vertically. Trying to deal with the pro- what we think is the problem of the world with the resources of the world. But here, by God's grace, at Palmetto Shores Church, we are going to be faithful to Jesus. And what that means is we're going to have to get really, really good at going vertical, at looking up, at crying out to God to do what only He can do. Now, as we turn uh, to the next way that we go vertical, Asaph's going to show us what he's dealing with. This is really where we're going to find out the setting. We're going to see why was Asaph crying out to God. And so second, when we're surrounded by the world uh, of hostility around us, we embrace who we are. We embrace who we are. I'm going to read verses 2 to 8 again. It says, For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gibal and Ammon, Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Ashur also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Israel has been completely and totally surrounded by their enemies. It's like if you could just draw little dot points around all around Israel, all the, all the nations around them, all the peoples around them have turned against them in hatred. And the goal is obvious. The goal is stated. These enemies want nothing less than annihilation. But notice that even while Asaph is feeling the constraining pressure of the world around him, even as he's crying out to God, And telling God how he feels the pressure from the enemies around him, he doesn't forget who he is. He doesn't forget the identity of Israel. Notice uh, a couple things. Notice that at some points in this section, Israel is pointed out as the victim of this hostility. Like in verse 4, they say, Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. But then, at other points... Asaph identifies God himself as the target of the hatred. Look in verse 5. For they conspire with one accord against you. Talking about God. They make a covenant. And this teaches us something very important about who we are. When God, in his grace, comes into our life and chooses us and makes us a member of his family, that means that we are united to him. And practically what that means is that those who love God's people also love God. And those who hate God's people also hate God. Uh, The best illustration I know of this is in Acts chapter 9. The the man Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, he was someone who was an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of Jesus Christ. And he's actually on his way to persecute Christians. He's got the warrant in his hand to persecute Christians. And then Jesus showed up and changed his life forever. But this is what Jesus said in Acts chapter 9. It says, this is what it says in Acts chapter 9. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Now, wait a second. When did Saul persecute Jesus? When did Saul throw Jesus in prison? When did Saul put out murderous threats against Jesus? 
Jesus has so identified with his people that to persecute them is to persecute him. To hate them is to hate him because he has united himself to us. That's why, although Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father, he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because God and God's people have been united. And so when we find ourselves surrounded by the hostility of the world, one vitally important thing we have to remember is who we are. By virtue of being united to Jesus, we will simultaneously be hated by the world and loved by God. By virtue of our union with Christ, we will bring hostility from the world into our life and By virtue of our union with Christ, we will receive an infinite ocean of love from God into our life as well. The uh, Heidelberg Catechism, it's a famous uh, document that was one of the early Protestant documents teaching Christian devotion and theology. The Heidelberg Catechism, maybe Google that later. Uh, Good luck spelling it. The first question, the very first question it asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? How would you answer that question? What is your only comfort in life and death? This is what the Heidelberg Catechism says. The first sentence answers back, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. When we're surrounded by the hostility of the world, we must embrace the fact that for Christ's sake, we will be hated by the world, and for Christ's sake, we will be loved by God. We must get excited about exclaiming, my only hope in life and death is that I am not my own. I belong to Jesus. And we see Asaph wrestling with that through this psalm. He's wrestling with the fact that, like it says in verse 3, this is, the experience. this is our life experience. Verse 3 is our life experience. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. That is our life from now until we die. As the people of God, we have a rich family history, which is where Asaph takes us next, and that's where it leads us to our third point as well. We feel surrounded by a hostile world, Third, remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. Verses 9 to 12 read, Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Ze'ib and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. Now, just going to be honest. First thing that jumps off the page to me on those uh, verses is dung for the ground. Uh, This is some serious smack talk going on here. Um, But what we see is that Asaph is looking back on his family history. He's remembering what God has done for his people in the past. And in, in particular, he takes us to two stories. Uh, these few verses really mean nothing to us unless we go back and look at, look at our family history. 
And he tells us two stories from Judges. You can maybe go read it later. This is chapter 4 through chapter 8 of Judges. That's where these two stories come from. The first story uh, is, is where we learn about this man, Sisera. Uh, Sisera wanted to destroy Israel, but Israel cried out to God for deliverance, and so God rescued his people. And this is what it says in Judges 4, verse 15. It says, And the Lord routed, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. Okay, so God won the battle. It sounds like everything's done. This is an awesome story. But that's not the end of the story. Sisera ran ran to a neighboring town, and he went into a woman's house. And this is where the text picks up in Judges 4, 20 to 22. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So when Asaph thinks back on his family history, this is the first story that comes to mind. Big, bad enemy who can destroy him. Being put to death by a housewife with a tent peg being pushed through, her brain, through his brain. It's a pretty cool story. Uh, just a little uh, service announcement. In January, uh, we're going to have four Sunday nights in January. We're going to study the book of Judges, and we're super excited about it. So if, if, that, if what I just read like, gets you fired up and you get really excited, uh, Sunday evenings in January, we're going to be studying Judges. We'd love to see you there. Okay, back to the, back to the text. Uh, we, we got more from Judges, though. Hold your horses. The second narrative that we're introduced to, uh, is, is, is the second character in the narrative is a, a, a man named Gideon. Gideon had 32,000 men, and God came to Gideon in Judges chapter 7, verse 2, and this is what it says. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites... Into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So there was 32,000. Now, after God came to him, there's 10,000. But God came to him again and said, There's still too many. And so God whittled the army down to 300. 32,000 down to 300. And this is what it says in. Uh, Judges 7.22. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. God confused the Midianite army. They turned on one another, started killing one another. And so when the 300 from Israel ran in, it was an easy scene to clean up, just an easy mop-up job. God saved Israel. He did it. And he did it in such a way that it would be obvious that it wasn't Israel's strength. It wasn't their strategy. It wasn't their military might. He did it in such a way to prove to them that it was because of his wisdom and his power that they had won the battle. And so 
what is the point of calling these specific stories to mind? Why does Asaph think of these stories in his situation? Well, what we see is that he doesn't, we don't just see God's power in these stories, although we do, but we also see God's heart in these stories. We see God's heart for his grace to save a people like Israel who definitely didn't deserve it. And we see God's heart for his glory to save in such a way that it was obvious who the real God was. See, Asaph knows that God cares most about God. God is most likely to save for the sake of God's glory. And so he, he's pointing God back to his family history where in the past God had saved on the basis of his grace and God had saved for his own glory and he's saying, God, do it again. Come and save us again by your grace and for your glory. So when we find ourselves surrounded by hostility from the world around us, we've got to remember what God has done. We've got to remember our family history We've got to remember that looking horizontally for what God can only give vertically only pours gasoline on the fire. It doesn't matter if we're 32,000 strong or 300 weak. What matters is, is God with us and is God for us? There's countless stories of God's faithfulness and God's wisdom and God's power uh, that are part of our family history that we need to have in our hearts and in our minds. But there is one story that is the most important. There's one story that must always live close to our hearts and our minds, and it's the story of the gospel. We know that the place in, in which God has most displayed his grace and he's most displayed his glory was when he offered up his only son on behalf of sinners and then raised him from the dead. That is the story that we must constantly be remembering and it's because remembering what God has done points us forward to what God can do and that leads us to the next section of the psalm and so fourth when we're surrounded by the hostility of the world around us we recognize what God can do we recognize what God can do this is the heart of the psalm this is the heart of the prayer this is what Asaph wants more than anything else in verses 13 to 16. So let's read it together. He says, Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountain ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Back up in verse 2 of Psalm 83, Asaph, in his prayer to God, he had, he had prayed this. He said, Your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. In other words, Asaph is feeling that the world around him has exalted itself against God. The world around him has put, put themselves in the place of God. The world around him is trying to prove that God is dead, that, God is, that their God won't help them. They have in pride and arrogance, swelled themselves up to be bigger and better than Asaph's God. And so Asaph was praying for God to show up, for God to demonstrate that, in fact, they were nothing, that, in fact, they did not have strength and might and power. 
in the face of, of his God. And he gives us a couple pictures for understanding this. Uh, the first is that of a threshing floor, right? Uh, crops would be brought in and um, they would have, need, need, need to have the external piece pulled off and separated from, from the true weight, maybe corn, think of corn with the, the, the shuck on the outside, whatever you call that thing. And uh, they would bring it in and they would sift it and the, the substantial piece would stay there. But then the wind would easily just blow away the chaff. It would just blow away the outside. And Asaph's saying, God, show up. Show them that they're, 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 they don't have any substance. Show them that they actually don't have any power. You know, blow them, blow them away like the wind. And then he talks about a consuming fire. Um, I remember a few years back, uh, I, I grew up attending Camp Ridgecrest in North Carolina, and there was this really bad fire, and it was consuming the, uh, the mountains up there. And I remember hearing from them that they were really nervous that the fire was going to overtake the camp. Uh, praise the Lord, it didn't. But we also know, I mean, all over the country, there are fires where, I mean, in one instant, People are just living their normal lives. They think everything's great. And in a few minutes later, they're running for their lives because the fire has just totally consumed them. And Asaph is saying, God, show up. Show us how fragile we are. Show us how, how lacking real, true substance we are. Show us how dependent we are upon you. And then he gives us one more picture. Um, I, I love, I don't know what translation of the Bible you brought with you today. Uh, some of the translations say the word storm. But I love how the English Standard Version, the ESV that we're using this morning, actually uses the word hurricane. And we know something about hurricanes here in Myrtle Beach. Um, you know, if, if tomorrow there was an announcement of some big hurricane that was going to come here, uh, all the water bottles in Myrtle Beach would be purchased and we'd be running out crazy, doing all kinds of weird stuff. Why would we do that? We would do that because under the power of a, of a great big storm like that, we start to feel how small we really are. We start to feel how... At every moment, we actually do kind of live right on the edge of life where if something big and powerful came into our lives, we would lose control in an instant. And Asaph is saying, God, show up. Show your power. Show my enemies how fragile they really are, how dependent upon you they really are. And this world that you and I find ourselves in, it's so proud, so arrogant, so judgmental, so aggressive, and so completely void of anything meaningful or lasting, so completely empty of tr true substance. We live in an extremely fragile age. And I hope with, hope with me you've learned that over these last few years. How emotionally fragile we are. How physically fragile we are. How socially fragile we are. Just one little thing that gets out of place and we fall apart. And Asaph is praying. He's saying, God, show up. Put us in our place. Pull the rug out from under the world so that we see that trying to live without you is foolish. Trying to believe that we have strength and power and life in ourselves apart from you is foolish. And verse 16 really gets at the heart of this song. This is the centerpiece of the whole thing. The whole thing revolves right here around verse 16. It says, fill their faces with shame, 
that they may seek your name, O Lord. See, this isn't ultimately some vindictive cry for vengeance. Asaph isn't just, you know, personally feeling like he has some sort of vendetta. No, what Asaph wants more than anything is for his enemies to be converted, for them to seek his God, for them to be turned, to know who the real, true, one God is. And this is what we call conviction. And I think that there is no more important prayer for us to pray in our generation than that God would bring about a real conviction in our lives. If we are going to see the tide turn and many people genuinely pursue God and seek Him, there will have to be a culture-wide experience of shame. This is what God does when He draws us to Jesus. He comes into our life and He rips the lid off and we realize that the things we've loved are actually gross. We realize that the passions we've pursued are actually empty and a lot of times they hurt us and they hurt other people. God in His grace, He blows up our life and we realize how embarrassing it is that we've given so much of our time and energy and money towards things that are meaningless. And then he shows us the Savior. He shows us the beautiful Christ. He shows us what we were really made for. And we're drawn to the one in whom real life, real substance is found. That's what Asaph wants. It's what he wanted for his enemies. He wanted them to, yes, feel their shame. Guys, we have believed the lie that feeling bad is always bad. That is a lie. Feeling bad is good when it drives you to Jesus. When it leads you to seek the only thing that isn't suicide. Feeling bad isn't always bad. It's the first step to finding life. So when we're surrounded by the hostility of the world, what do we do? Well, I think a a good thing is to recognize what God can do. That our God makes friends out of his enemies. That if there's a one of us here today who claims to know Christ, to walk with God, it means that we too once were an enemy. We too once walked in the desires of the flesh and the emptiness of the world. And God came while we were dead in our trespasses and sins and made us alive together with Christ. That's what our God can do. That same Apostle Paul who was on his way to persecute Christians, Jesus showed up. And what was the first thing Jesus said? Why are you persecuting me? Hey, Paul, you need to feel bad for a second. You need to know that what you're doing, you think you're serving God, but you're really not. You're really hurting yourself and you're hurting other people. But guess what? I'm going to change your life. And I'm going to make the one who was most aggressively against me to be most aggressively for me. 
That's what our God can do. And so rather than throwing our hands up in the air and you know, casting the world off and acting like there's no hope and the sky's falling, no, we remember what our God can do. That if He did it in our life, and I know there's some, I know all of us in here, there's some stories in here, people who hated God and now you love God. You're an enemy of God and now you're a friend of God. And that's what our God can do. And the reason that Asaph can pray these big kind of prayers about God's hurricane and the, the fire and the, the wholesale shame leads us to our last point. For God to come and do something amazing like this, Asaph knows who he is. He knows who the real God is. And so finally, when we're surrounded by hostility of the world, we turn vertical to, while we rest in who God is. We rest in who God is. You know, we've seen throughout the psalm, yes, it's true, Asaph wants his enemies to be defeated. Uh, he wants them to be confounded. He wants them to come, to, come face to face with what they've done. But ultimately, what he wants is for them to know who the real God is. Verse seven, verses 17 to 18 finish the psalm saying, Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. So who is this God, the one true God, that Asaph knows and that Asaph wants his enemies to come to know? Well, let's put it in the form of three questions. Question number one, how many are there who are sovereign over all the earth? Asaph answers, you alone. There is no other sovereign. There is no other person who is in control over what's happening in history other than our God. There's one sovereign. Second question, who gives life and substance to all things? Asaph's answer, this God, his name is the Lord. Now, you, you would see if you've you got your Bible there, the Lord is in all caps there, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is God's proper name, and it can be translated, I am. When God reveals himself to the world, this is my name. He says that his name is I am. Why? Because all life and all substance and all strength and all power come from him. Apart from him, we're all just chaff. We're all just dust in the wind. But it all comes from this one true God. And then the final question, I think the most important question for Psalm 83, is there anything outside of our God's control power, or plan? Asaph's answer, this God is the most high over all the earth. God is supreme. He is sovereign. He reigns over elections. He reigns over school boards. He reigns over sicknesses. There is nothing that has happened or ever could happen that he would not be sovereign over. In Acts chapter 4, we find this prayer of the early church. This is sort of how Psalm 83 connects with who Jesus Christ is. Right? All the scriptures are about Jesus. And what we see is that the experience of Psalm 83 is exactly the same experience that Jesus Christ went. He is the true Israel. That just as Asaph feels surrounded by, by, the, by the world around, he feels the hostility of the world, that is exactly what our Savior did for us. 
But this is what they prayed. This is what the the early church prayed in Acts chapter 4. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Now pause for a second. What are they praying? They're just recounting the story. They're just saying, hey, Jesus, your servant, the whole world came up against him to put him to death, to crucify him. And this is what they say, to do whatever your hand And your plan had predestined to take place. The same sovereign Lord who reigns over our lives today is the same sovereign Lord who reigned over Jesus as the world gathered together to put him to death. And as the the text said, to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. And the same sovereign Lord who reigns over our lives today is the same sovereign Lord who raised Jesus up from the dead. So how do we turn vertical when we're surrounded by hostility? We rest in who God is because he is most high over all the earth. We've been asking this question throughout the Psalms this this year. Where is God? It's on the front of the bulletin. It's been a a question we've been asking throughout the whole thing. Where is God? And Psalm 83 answers back, God is reigning over the earth. When the man said to the missionary, John G. Patton, I mentioned John Patton at the beginning. When When the man said to John G. Patton, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. This is how John Patton replied. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own body is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die, serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. The reason John Patton could go and be a missionary to a people who he knew wanted to eat him was because he had staked his life on the God who alone, whose name is the Lord, is most high over all the earth. So this week, when you're at work and you feel the pressure to get revenge on somebody who's gossiped about you or given you a hard time about maybe your integrity or your faith in Jesus, instead of fighting back to defend yourself, turn vertical. Look up to God. Remember, we we can't conquer the world with the resources of the world. And I know we've got some students here today. When you're at school, when you're feeling the pressure to assimilate to conform to the world. Remember, remember 
what our God can do. That just like with the Apostle Paul, he's on the way to persecute Christians and Jesus showed up and just radically changed his life. And God could do the same thing to that classmate who gives you a hard time. He could radically change their life. And when your own family mocks you for following Christ and, or attending church or whatever it is, remember, guys, we've got a better identity than even our own blood family identity. We have been united to Jesus, the sovereign risen Lord, which means we can expect two things. Two things we can expect. Hostility from the world and love from God. And then uh, a final thought, and this was as I reflected this week in my own heart and life. I haven't really actually experienced a whole lot of hostility for being faithful to Jesus in my life. Not a whole lot, some, but not a whole lot. But one of the things that keeps me from standing for Christ, from sharing the gospel, from fulfilling the mission that Jesus has given us is the fear of hostility, is the fear of what might happen when people around me know that I think or believe certain things. And so I just want to encourage you, I would, I would bet that for a lot of us in here that's true, that what keeps us silent, that what keeps us closed to obeying Christ and wanting to share him is because we're afraid of what might come. We're afraid of that hostility. So if, if you're like me, we've got to walk in the fact that this sovereign Lord, this reigning Savior, his resurrection power and his eternal plan and purpose cannot be shaken. He is Lord over the earth. And I don't know about you guys, but my heart, my heart needs to know that. I need to believe that deeper so that I'll be more faithful to Jesus. We're going to pray. They're going to give you a few minutes to reflect, and then we're going to worship this God together who we've been talking about this morning. Lord, I confess this morning that many times when I felt the pressures of the world, I have sought to respond with the resources of the world. I confess that before you today. And I just pray that you change our hearts. Teach us when the pressure comes to look to you to go vertical, to seek from you what can only be found in you. Lord, bring us to the end of ourselves so that we'll embrace what it means to follow Jesus all the way down, both into the uncomfortable places, but also into your love. Lord, when we see the chaos around us, Help us, help us to see it as an opportunity to seek your name, to point others towards you, and to remember that you are the king who's reigning over all the earth. 
We submit to you now, humbly, Lord. You are so good to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray and worship. Amen.